What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This episode of The Warrior's Huddle is brought to you by The Athletic Club Oakland. One of the things we've all missed most during the past year of quarantining has been watching sports with friends. I didn't realize how much better it is watching The Warriors with friends until I experienced so many unreturned high fives. Luckily, The Athletic Club Oakland came off the bench with an MVP move. They shut down the entire street next to their normal space and created an enormous outdoor section called the Town Gardens. It's got TVs everywhere, comfortable seating, and their full food and bar service. It's the perfect place to watch the game with friends while staying safe. It's now our go-to spot, and hopefully we'll see you there. In fact, if we see anybody at the ACO in a huddle shirt, you've got a beer on me. The Athletic Club Oakland, where sports fans can be sports fans again. We're adults. You know, it's a long season. We're going to have good games. We're going to have bad games. Tonight was just a tough day at the office. We're going to bring you all to our huddle. You are in the Huddle with me, Bram. No Marcus, at least right now, will be joining us in a couple of minutes. But with me, per usual, my master of all things sound, Maxime. How's it going? Maxime, we are fired up for today. Ben Golliver is joining us for the first time, and I know that means a lot to you. Anyone who's been listening to this show for long enough knows that you've brought up that name, I don't know, casually speaking, ten to 15,000 times. So I'm sure you're a little nervous about his appearance, and uh, your nervousness is making me nervous. I couldn't be more excited, but I wanted to talk to you first because we got to knock a couple of things out before Golliver is here. But let me hear from you real upfront here. Am, am I overplaying this, or are you, you know, your palm's a little sweaty, or are you a little excited for today? My palms are a little sweaty. My knees are weak, you know. Um, there's a vomit on my sweater already. That's not good. It's, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna be, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. I didn't know that you podcasted in sweaters. That kind of concerns me. And the fact that you're already vomiting on them makes me a little uncomfortable. So I'm, you know, I'm just going to move on and let's not tell that to Ben. I feel like I, I don't think that would go well. You're, you're probably right. Although I do think that he would appreciate that I'm podcasting in sweaters. That feels... <laughs> He a sweater guy? That's, uh, yeah, that's right up his right. alley. We'll, we'll ask him when he gets here. Before that, I do have a few things I want to get out of the way. Number one, we've got a new ongoing, I don't even know what to call it, man, contest, segment, something, but I do have a title for it. It is going to be named the Curry History Watch, and the idea is pretty simple. So before every game, and I've already started this, but I want to make it more official, I'm going to shoot out a tweet that asks for anybody out there who sees it to guess how many points Curry's going to put up for that game and the exact amount of threes he will hit. And, you know, we'd, we'd love to have your takes. But what makes it kind of fun is there's actually two different ways you can win with your response. So first way, just respond. You don't have to follow us. You don't even have to listen to this show very frequently. If you see that thing out there and you respond and you get the uh, answer right, then you are the winner and we'll give you a shout out on this show and you can bask in the knowledge that you can tell the future. Um, In fact, we already have two winners from the Sacramento game and uh, uh, at who I am, I'm sorry, at Joy Perfection, whose name is who I am, and at Cowgirl65, whose name is Marta, both guessed that Steph would put up 37 and 7-3. So congratulations to them. But maybe a little bit more excitingly, right? So the second way you can win this, if you are a follower of ours on Twitter and If you support us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month, 
and you get the answer twice, you get it twice in a row, then right now I am guaranteeing you, I will send you $100. No joke, no bullshit. We, we have money in our Patreon account, and if you can do those two things, if you get the answers right and you, you've satisfied those other deals, we will give you 100 beans, uh, no questions asked. So Curry History Watch, that's coming uh, to a game close to you. And then the second thing, man, and this is kind of aimed at you, we did that whole segment last week where we talked about things we'd like to take back you know, questions we've asked, moments we had where we felt hell of awkward about it. And Marcus made himself seem pretty important with his Dr. Dre story. I embarrassed myself. So did Connor. And then when I re-listened to the episode, I realized that you did not give us a response. You housed Marcus. I mean, accurately. I love that. But you never actually gave us a story. So on you, man, what do you got? Well, this is a little niche, but look, I mean, ultimately, this is the one that sticks out in my mind. Um, and I, I won't belabor the details because it's like pretty specific to, to jazz pedagogy. But suffice it to say, I was in a big auditorium listening to a lecture um, and uh, some guy, you know, was talking about jazz theory. And I, I raised my hand and I proposed an alternate way of um, looking at the scale, let's say. Right. And it was, um, in retrospect, not intelligent, but his response to me in front of the whole room, tons of my friends, a lot of my peers and people that I wanted to respect me was straight up. Shut up. (laughs) No. How many people were in the room? Uh, at, At least 500. Dude, I, I love that that story involved both the words pedagogy. What did you say was the first one up there? And then shut up. I did not expect this to have the the punchline of shut up, which I absolutely loved. So how did you respond? Did you just shut up? Did, did of course you, I just shut up. What are you talking about? Listen, he, this guy is, um, you know, he's like one of the sort of leading jazz educators, right? And so, of course, I wanted to look smart for him. And the thing is, is actually years later, um, I found myself at a cocktail party with him and I mentioned that story to him and he just looked at the other guy that was standing with us then looked back at me and said that sounds like me <laughs> <laughs> I wish he had told you to shut up again he would have been the man for that so take me back to that moment though so are, do you stand to ask the question do you just you know, put up your hand what's what's the setting oh, as he tells you to shut I up I did not I did not stand up but my hand was so because the thing is is like you know, to me, it was such a simpler explanation for the situation, right? It was like, oh, we can reduce all this complexity, and I have this awesome idea, and I'm going to tell it to this leading jazz educator. He's probably going to put it in his next book. I'm going to become famous. You felt smart, oh, probably, yeah. too. I was, like, as it's coming out, you're like, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right now. It's all happening. Is, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm building my reputation as I speak. The heart rate is, you know, <laughs> pumping. I'm doing the, like, Hermione, like, holding my, my right arm up with my left arm. Like, ooh, ooh, pick me. Yeah, the whole thing was just so bad. I'm about to shock your mind and then just immediately shut up. That is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I thought you were going to be like Marcus and tell us that you told Tupac to go f*** himself or something. So, I mean, at least yours is embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I also did also, but I was at the uh, the Coachella experience when they unveiled the Tupac hologram and there was a legit one and a half seconds, which is a long time where I was like, oh my God, Tupac is alive. He's finally back and I'm here to witness it. So... One and a half seconds. Hopefully you turned, you turned to the person next to you who was that jazz teacher and was like, I told you he was still alive. <laughs> I, I, can, I can only hope that was the back and forth. Uh, we only have a few minutes before Ben joins us, but I do want to do a very fast uh, glass half full. So look back, gentlemen. MT, do we got you? Yeah, I'm here. Excellent. Look back, gentlemen, at the past week of Warriors basketball and dig out something you liked and didn't like. I'll go first and I'll go fast. Something I didn't like, everything about that Mavericks game, just every second, from the moment it began to the second I dragged my ass home super depressed and angry uh, from the Oakland Athletic Club where I ultimately caught it. It was just a burger experience, and I'd like to not discuss it, so I'll just keep it as a whole. It's something I did not like. Something I like... Draymond Green. Why? Take a listen to this quote. Coach, what's the key to those turnarounds? How do you make sure that the team is looking forward to this trip as opposed to still thinking about last night's disappointment? Well, they just proved to me that they're they've um, they're they're moving on because we had a really good practice, and you know a lot of um, what happens with us is uh, you know we sort of go as Draymond goes. Uh, Draymond is uh, is our leader, our emotional leader. Steph is also a leader, 
Um, but Draymond is sort of the barometer, and um, he was really engaged and talkative in practice today and you know, helping with the young guys, and uh, that's why Draymond, Draymond is who he is. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really confident, given uh, what I saw today, out of him and out of the team in practice that um, we'll have a good response. So, gentlemen, how obvious, or was it obvious, let me ask it this way, that the only reason I played that quote was because I was the person who asked Steve Kerr the question at practice? Like, could you tell that that's why I did that? Or did it seem like a good quote and, you know, something I just came up with off the cuff? No, it was amazing. I'm super impressed. That's what I was looking for. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, the, uh, the only reason I played that is so that we could actually have my voice, not Kerr's, and I've accomplished that now. <laughs> Definitely sandbagged it. I can't believe you stooped that low just to play your own quote. Oh, what do you mean you can't believe that? Have you not been recording a podcast with me for the last two years? I feel like we've met, and you definitely know that I'm capable of that. Keep the mic. Something good, something bad. I mean, it, something bad is, is always going to be in line with what you were saying. It was just a crazy bad game. Um I think being on the wrong end of a historic scoring drought is probably just a bad sign all around. Um, it's just weird. Like this team is just Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, like we will play well and then the same lineup will trot out there. And all of a sudden we're letting Luka Doncic and a bunch of people just to run all over. So like um, Luka, I can handle Maxi Kleber. I f- can't yeah you know yeah. like like there's like hardaway jr is torching us like all these random people couldn't have been hotter and it was the kind of i mean it was you know it's just one of those perfect storms it's just one of those cluster f-ks, but not enjoyable at all yeah um something i did like um uh, the game My question before- my question yeah. to Steve Kerr. I really exactly. appreciate you saying that, man. I'm surprised you were able to hear it, you know, but it's, it's nice of you to say. Um, aside from your question, which was A-plus work, um, probably Kelly Oubre's uh, Tootsie Roll jinx again. The fact that he does it and it keeps getting people to miss free throws is amazing. And the fact he did on the second one and only could do half of it with one leg because he had to go box out but still did it, it was just great. I love it. I love it. I hope he, he does it all the time. Maxime, could you hit a free throw if I was doing the tootsie roll on the line? Uh, no, uh, certainly not. That would, I mean, I normally totally could, but that would definitely throw me. <laughs> something you like, <laughs> something you don't. So um, I will say, you know, while we're, while we're on this conversation of something that I like, if there's any sort of um, excuse, right, it's that the, the lineup was pretty thin. Um, and I think we're, we're pretty run ragged. So I don't think, you know, actually, as Ben likes to say, you don't judge a team on their best day or on their worst day. And this was definitely their worst day. So, But um, something that I don't like to kind of move away from the specific Mavs game is that Draymond's been playing a lot of time at the five, and I think it's starting to show. It's a bummer. It's a reminder that we lost Marquise Chris for the season. It's a bummer that we lost James Wiseman for the season. Um, And like, you know, that's a lot of wear and tear on somebody who's a small ball five at best. So that has me concerned going forward. Especially when you're also dealing with some minor ankle injuries from Steph, you know, it's like at what point is chasing the 10 seed or the 9 seed so that we can have two chances to try to get into the playoffs so that we can lose pretty much in the first round um, a wise thing to be doing when we're pushing our players so close to our all-star players so close to the edge. That has me concerned. Um to be a little, you know, tongue in cheek here, right? Um, we now our, our pick definitely doesn't convey to Oklahoma City Thunder because we're not getting a top ten record. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of a silver lining there, um, and so that's a little bit of what I didn't like and liked. I still haven't accepted that this isn't a veteran team. Here's what I mean: I just got spoiled, man. I got used to it. I got used to a group of talented players who, when they recognized there was shit on the line. They all stepped up. You know, they turned on the proverbial switch, so to speak. And it's not shocking that this team can't do it. There, There's a bunch of young guys learning on the fly. And so, you know, it is what it is. But if I'm really going to, to now talk about a game I didn't want to, what did I really not like about that, uh, that Dallas loss? So Kerr confirmed it during his press conference today. We all going into last night as fans identified it as the probable start of the playoffs, right? I mean, the playoffs aren't here, but we said this game is basically like a playoff game. And we expected the the Warriors to step up. Well, Kerr said that's what they talked about. 
before the game, they all identify, yep, this is it. We want the sixth seed, they said. We can identify that, and we can go after it if we beat Dallas. And they didn't, you know? And so what I don't like is they mm. recognized how important it was, and then they showed up, and they looked flat. You know, and it, it, it happens. It is what it is. It is the NBA. This, you know, you, you can't expect all of your teams to be able to, to flip on a dime and turn it on. But, yeah, it, it sucked. It was disappointing. Uh, let me go back to the other topic because it doesn't make me as sad. MT, before you joined us, we announced a new segment, the Curry History Watch. Uh, and basically, we're going to be asking our listeners to guess via Twitter how many points Steph will go for in a game and how many threes with some cash prizes associated with it. But let's get the guesses started. The next game is against Minnesota. Give me a guess. How many does Steph go for with how many threes? Minnesota. D'Angelo Russell's playing again. Anthony Edwards. Ricky Rubio. Let's see. I'm going to go... 35.83. I go 42 and 10. Maxime? Wow, that's almost spot on what I was going to say. I was going to say 41 and 9. Well, you're off. You're off by one in each category. So uh, <laughs> just sit back and watch my brilliance roll in. Boys, let's see what uh, Ben has to say. It is my great pleasure to announce that joining us for the first time, an NBA writer for the Washington Post, a man who has covered the NBA for more than a decade through outlets like Blazers Edge, CBSSports.com, and Sports Illustrated, the author of the brand new book, Bubble Ball, and a guy who both developed a meaningful relationship with an egret named Mikey and got sprayed with champagne by LeBron in Orlando, Mr. Ben Gulliver. What's going on, Ben? Not too much, guys. You know, I came in here just thinking it was going to be like a one-on-one deal, but you're triple teaming me like Steph Curry, so I'm I'm loving this. <laughs> uh, let the record reflect: I actually went outside my office and tried to flag or flag down just random people. I was hoping to have like ten or eleven voices on the other side of this, but but no one would follow me in, man. So you're stuck with just the three of us. Well, I'm so glad to be here, and uh, you're right. You know that Mikey the Egret, my little uh, you know adopted pet, while I was down there, 93 days, 92 nights, living at Disney World for the NBA bubble has become almost like a legend in and of himself. I've had people ask me for pictures of him. I feel like he gets brought up in a lot of these interviews I'm doing about the book. So I just hope I can have a reunion one day. You know, Mike and I can meet up and talk about the days, we, the afternoons we spent in 95-degree heat and swampy conditions waiting for, like, the Eastern Conference Finals to start. You know what I mean? I do, and at the risk of overusing the phrase bubble, you just burst mine. So I th- was so proud of myself coming up with that Mikey thing. Like, I thought for sure, like, look, I'm going to drop this in the intro, and Ben's immediately going to know that we spent way more time preparing for this, and we read his whole <laughs> book, and he's going to think we're awesome. And then eight seconds in, you're like, oh, and everybody's already brought that up to me. It's, it's actually the common theme. So, I mean, my whole plan immediately dashed, Ben. Nicely played. Well, no, I, I would. I'm not trying to burst your bubble in any way. I appreciate the love. I just wish Mikey could join me. Maybe we could make this three on two. Uh, no, it is funny what kind of sticks out though from these uh, experiences that we've all been living with in quarantine. Because you know, being 3,000 miles from home, being sure. at Disney World, and by the way, like I don't watch any Disney movies. Uh, I don't really know any of the characters. I hate amusement parks. I hate crowds. I hate lines. So the idea that the NBA was going to go to Disney World. Um, you know, definitely kind of threw me for a loop last summer when I realized exactly what I was getting into. And I also happen to live in California, and I'm sure you guys agree. It's pretty clearly the best state in the union, um, with apologies to my home state of Oregon. So the idea of going to Florida, where they were having, you know, big uh, spikes in the the COVID numbers right when we were about to get there, (laughs) all of it sent me looking for, you know, comforts, you know, whatever I could find. And I, it just so happened to be that, you know, some of the animals around the campus, which was totally deserted while we were down there, besides the NBA players and, you know, the officials and the coaches themselves, you know, it was completely empty, a total ghost town. And so I actually found like the wildlife was really comforting. And, and uh, I kind of used Mikey as the uh, the prop for that. Uh, but, you know, we're walking around. I'm seeing alligators. I'm seeing uh, armadillo. I saw a deer. I saw some hawks. I mean, you know, the size of your fist down there, the Florida sized bugs. And so, I mean, that had nothing to do with basketball, but I do think, um, you know, just striving for balance in our day-to-day lives as we go through this pandemic has been something that's been on my mind constantly. And that was a big part of my experience down there, just trying to stay sane. It makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's any semblance and maybe I'm misusing the phrase, but any semblance of normalcy. 
You know, I mean, because we can all identify that when we are stuck in our own levels of quarantine. You know, when I took my daughter for a walk outside, just seeing some semblance of something that I could recognize, you know, some vestige of my old life was a huge benefit. So I can immediately see that. Um, I tell you what, I, so I've got, as you can tell, I'm chopping at the bit. I've got a thousand questions for you about the bubble. I've got a bunch of stuff about your book. Um, and I got some stuff about you. It'd be crazy if we didn't find out about you personally. But first, I want you to share in some pressure. So you have no idea how much of a fan Maxime, I, I am a huge fan as is Marcus, but Maxime has brought you up on this show enough times where I almost had to come up with a rule. No more talking about the f-ing goat podcast. Like this is our own <laughs> show. So there's weird pressure today, man. You know, I, I feel a little weight on my shoulders and I'm sure Maxime is a little nervous and I wanted to make you feel, a, I mean, if not nervous, I don't know, pressure filled as well. So there it is. Well, let me just say this, you know, you can't apply more pressure to me than I apply to myself. I named my podcast the greatest of all talk. I mean, if that's not kind of like a self-fulfilling, see, I don't know what is now. Do I live up to that title every episode? Maybe not, but I'm certainly glad to be with the fellow goat. And it kind of, Honestly, not to like, you know, neg you here a little bit. It sounds like you might need to step up a little bit. You and Marcus might, might need to get into the game and get on Maxine's level. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Up until now, we've been calling Marcus the narrator. You now deserve that. I, I understand what's <laughs> happening. I can look around and see this guy's sh- me. I put him on my, on my show and he still is following you. So it hurts me. Marcus, how are you feeling, man? I mean, any pressure on you? Are you just kind of hanging back loose and easy? Where are you at? I definitely feel the pressure. I mean, Maxime has hyped it up and, I, you know, we got to live up to the goat status. So I, I'm, I'm good with being baby goat. Um, <laughs> ben will let us have that title. No, I mean, I'm just going to tell you the reason we aren't that good, uh, Ben, is because Marcus has held us back for years. I'm just, I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to say it out loud, but it is what it is. Yeah, now you're trying to paint him like Kavon Looney or something. I mean, show Marcus some respect. <laughs> Never. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely not. Let's uh, let's jump into this, Ben. And so, like I said, we, we all enjoyed the book, and I've got a lot of passages I want to run by you. But first, let me start with a couple of personal ones. So I know you're from Oregon. You've already announced it. I know you started your writing career with the, quote, draft Kevin Durant blog in 07. And I mentioned it. You spent a bunch of time on Blazer's Edge. So this isn't a crazy well-informed question, but am I right in assuming you at least grew up as a Blazers fan? So, yeah, it, it was interesting. I kind of had a dual personality. So my earliest memories were definitely Blazer fan memories. Um, you know, the early 90s Rip Cities teams, you know, we're talking about Clyde Drexler, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth, and, and rest in peace to those last two guys. Terry Porter was certainly a, a guy I looked to as one of my favorite players when I was really young. And I have a lot of fond memories of collecting like Dairy Queen glasses that they would hand out with those guys' pictures on them or <laughs> basketball cards that would come Brands uh, bakery up there in Portland, um, you know, all these kinds of things they would do to touch the community. They like completely touched me and that really shaped my early life. But I actually was raised in Beaverton, Oregon, which is the international uh, home of Nike. And so I pretty much got totally brainwashed with Nike propaganda for about, you know, the first 15 years of my life or so. So I got deep, deep into the Michael Jordan yeah, you're uh, a Bulls sta- guy, huh? Standum fandom. And it wasn't even the Bulls, really. It was just M. This idea that, like, you know, he was going to be the greatest athlete of all time and yep. he was going to be, you know, uh, eclipsing all the guys who came before him, taking the league over from Magic Johnson and just, you know, the larger than life mythos that we saw throughout uh, the last dance. I mean, that was sort of my childhood. I mean, I was I was drinking all of that propaganda up as fast Love as I that. could. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think it, in a way it probably polluted my brain a little bit. You know, I mean, I did name my podcast. Like, you know, I, I mean, there's long lasting implications. You, I named, you named that your bird. egret Mikey. Yeah. And you didn't name him Clyde. You named him Mikey. There you go. A hundred percent. And to make it even worse, I named our family Golden Retriever, who was a female dog after Michael Jordan. I called her Emmy Jane for MJ. So look, I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty deep sickness. But um, I would say that the Jordan Stan stuff was really kind of my formative experience, um, you know, covering the, uh, the NBA or at least following the NBA, I should say. And then once I started to cover it, um, you know, moving back to the Portland area after college, you know, the Blazers were good, but not great. And they were sort of trying to build momentum around Brandon Roy. And so for me at that stage, um, I looked at it much more from like a writer perspective, a creative writing perspective, as opposed to a fan perspective. And, you know, I didn't go to journalism school. I kind of had to learn that I was going like on the job. So I found myself just obsessed with the Blazers as my muses. And I kind of worked from there into some more national uh, writing opportunities. But 
I'll always have a uh, fond spot in my heart uh, for those Blazers teams. But, you know, to be honest, over the last five, six, seven years, I've probably written more about the Warriors and covered more Warriors games and same deal with the Lakers and a few other franchises than I have uh, even compared to the Blazers. Let's test your pseudo-neutrality when it comes to those teams. If you're starting a team today and you could pick either Steph or Dame, who do you take? Oh, Steph. I mean, yeah. I mean, it depends on how long you want to run this for. If we're saying just like one season to win a title, it's Steph. Um, and I think it's there's still a cut there. I'm a big guy. You've got to earn your stripes. Um, and that's funny because Dame's the stripes guy with Adidas. But I always <laughs> say you got to kind of knock guys off the throne. And so for the, the longest time when I was doing top 100 bliss, it would always be LeBron, LeBron. I mean, you've got to come steal that from him. I feel the same way about all NBA team voting. Uh, I mean, you could have an argument here probably into the last couple of weeks that Damian Lillard had a better overall season than Steph. But I think when it's you know, when it's all done here in a couple of weeks, I think Steph's going to be above him on that all NBA conversation. And I think, you know, Steph is going to always sort of be the, the looming shadow over Lillard's career. It's a fascinating hypothetical. Steph Curry never come along. How much of a bigger star and bigger sure. NBA presence is Lillard? Um, I mean, you can make a strong case. He would be, you know, have had some MVP opportunities along the way, had way more all NBA first team selections. Uh, potentially he's like the center uh, piece of a super team. If you've got other guys looking around saying, who do we want to play with? And there's no Warriors dynasty. I could see some guys being interested in going to play with, uh, you know, Damian Lillard up there in Portland, but it's always kind of been that big brother, little brother thing between those two guys, unfortunately uh, for Damian's side and for Blazers fans as well. I got two personality questions for you. Here's the first. Uh, after, so obviously, they, you know, you wrote a blog saying take Durant. They didn't listen to you. They took Greg Oden. We all know how that worked out. My personality type, I'd never get over it. I'd be secretly, not even secretly, I'd be publicly pissy about that forever. <laughs> I would still, like now, I'd still be thinking about it. You know, like if Wiseman doesn't pan out, I will be angry about the LaMelo ball thing in 2045. It's just the type of sick bastard I am. For you, who are you? You know, they make that, I don't know, mistake, decision, however you want to call it. Do you get over it? Do you still think about it? How are you as a fan? Well, look, I mean, I can, I can forgive, but I can't forget. You know, part of it was... <laughs> Uh, in my mind, I was going to convince them. You know, I was a young writer with a you know inflated ego, like all young writers, really thinking that I was going to be able to make the case in these <laughs> essays and these blog posts that was going to like swing their decision. I was so confident. I mean, I wrote a, f a footnoted like twenty-something page essay in defense of taking Durant over Odin. And what's also funny is at that time it was a really contrarian opinion. I mean, they ran a poll in the Oregonian, um, you know, kind of in response to the blog that I wrote. And it was like 92 to 8 in favor of Odin. I'll never forget one of the letters to the editor said, even cavemen know taking Odin over Duran is smarter. And it was like a, a play on words from the Geico commercials back in yeah. the day. Um, and so I guess uh, the cavemen were wrong on that one. But, you know, <laughs> look... It, do you have that? The I have all twenty-one footnotes framed around my office. If I was right about that, and ninety-two percent of the people told me I was wrong, yeah, I do have that article framed. It's in storage right now, but I, I did keep that for sure. Um, I, I would just say Kevin's career has gone a lot of crazy directions, right? And so you when us. you look back on what we expected OKC to get out of the Kevin Durant draft pick, uh, you could make an argument that there was a lot left on the table, right? No title. Uh, one finals appearance, some really entertaining playoff runs, but um, not as many as we might think. And certainly they didn't get his best and most profitable years in terms of the, the Warriors dynasty and how he contributed to those titles and, and the finals MVP selections and all that. So um, not that it was a disappointment in Oklahoma City. Surely they're going to retire his jersey and get over all the cupcake stuff and all that nonsense. Um, but I have thought, like, what if he had broken Blazers fans' hearts by leaving Portland? And I guess from that standpoint, I'm kind of glad it didn't go that way, just for my friends who are in Portland who would have had to suffer through that. Let's assume, this is just a random off-the-cuff question, but I'd love your take. I want all of your boys' take. Let's assume KD wins a title in Brooklyn. Uh, if it's not this year or next year, but let's, let's say he gets one. If it was up to you and he could only retire his number in one franchise, where does that number, which rafters does it end up? It depends on how many titles he got in Brooklyn, right? I mean, if, if he's running off a three-peat with these guys and like they just become the new team where everybody wants to go and tag along. Give him two, yeah. the same amount he won here. Yeah, I mean, I, go to how many years does he spend in Brooklyn. I would probably still default to give it to Oklahoma City because that's the, huh. the original team. 
I actually made a Jersey retirement formula when I was like 24 years old and you can kind of go back and, and, and find it, but it basically waits, you know, what are the most important things? Like, did you start your career with this team? Did you end your career with this team? Did it have your peak years? How many years were you there? And I found going through a bunch of different case studies, the longevity part really mattered because it helped solidify your position with the fan base. And I think that's the tricky part for KD is, how long will it take them to forget? And is he willing to kind of move on? But I mean, given how quick that Golden State era was, you know, I don't know. I think if you asked him to choose, don't you think he'd probably choose OKC? I do. Um, although, no, I think if you asked him to choose, he would never make a decision. I think he'd say, I think it's OKC. No, I think it's Golden State. No, I think it's Brooklyn. No, I think it's Golden State. I don't think we would ever ultimately get a final answer. Maxime, where would you put that jersey? Well, I would expect that he would want to put it um, in Brooklyn just based on, you know, him finally being with his boys. But let's see if that craters over the coming years, you know, and there's a lot of potential for that to um, to combust. You know, I also just I got to point out that in the same way of like being young and thinking that I had a lot of influence, we had a moment where um, it became clear that Kevin had heard some of our takes on this pod. Um, and I was suggesting to him that I could sit down with him for meditation sessions. And, and I still firmly believe that that would have changed the course of his career. <laughs> it probably would have kept him in Golden State. And then we would be seeing his jersey in the rafters after a couple more titles. Uh, in related news, shockingly, he did not pick up meditation Super weird. and did not pick it up with Maxime specifically. I don't know why. That but was that more just shocking. Didn't, yeah, it just didn't happen. Last personality question, and then let's get to your book. And this one involves, I don't know, maybe too long of a story, but I'm going to give it to you. Uh, and it's recent. It's just last night. So we are associated, Ben, with a local sports bars, the Athletic Club Oakland. And one of the things I like about it is they created this spot where we can go and watch games now, but not feel all weirded out uh, because of COVID. It's an outdoor space, and they have individual tables. So you can go be around people, but they're not on top of you. you know. And I'm neurotic enough where that means something to me. I'm, I'm worried still uh, despite being vaccinated. So I go to the game last night. It's you know It hasn't started. I'm super fired up. I haven't been crushed uh, by the Dallas score yet. And and I'm there for, I don't know, let's say 10, 15 minutes. I'm enjoying it. And this random dude comes up to my table. It's a picnic table. Uh, it comes up to my table and asks me, do you mind if I sit? So here's my personality type. I'm in, inside, of course I mind. I don't know this person. If we weren't in a pandemic, I wouldn't want them there. But I'm such a pleaser and I kind of panicked. I said, sure. You know? So he sits. He's at, the, uh, he's at the picnic table in front of me. We're watching a television screen that's in front of him. So I'm now looking at his back. And all I'm thinking the entire time is, I wish he would leave. This is making me nervous. I hate this. I have to come up with some reason for why he should bounce. And then at one point he says, I can't believe Steph is having such a bad game. And instead of like doing anything to make him leave, I find myself going, me neither. I can't believe it either. And I'm seeking this guy's approval. So that's who I am, Ben. Sick f I don't know why that's true. If this was you, if you're sitting there, you're, you're, all you want to do is enjoy some time on your own, and this guy comes up and asks if he could sit, would you try to please him? Like, How would you handle that scenario? I mean, this is going to make me sound like a horrible person, but I'm just going to give you the honest answer. I really think that if he came over and said that, I would stand up without saying a word and just leave and let him have the table. <laughs> Like, I don't know. Like, I think maybe it's just because I spend so much time, you know, talking basketball on podcasts and, you know, writing, you know, writing about basketball and thinking about it all day long that like when I'm in any other sort of a social environment, even if I was like to go out in public to watch a game, which I don't really do because I like to really focus in when I'm watching. And so I prefer sure. to watch from home um, or to prefer, obviously, to watch from arenas. Uh, but anytime I'm in that kind of a situation, the last thing I really want to talk about is basketball. And there are some exceptions like, you know, uh, you know, distant family who I know if they're real diehard fans, I'll, you know, I'll definitely talk to them like a Christmas holiday or a family reunion or something like that. But in general, like man on the street kind of conversations, I would way rather talk about like just to the random political news of the day or some, you know, zany podcast that I listen to, you know, about whatever or almost would anything besides um, basketball. I'll give you one other example. I mean, whenever I get time off, which is pretty rare. I the exact opposite of like my work environment. Right. So NBA stadiums, typically loud, tens of thousands of people, stressful, noisy, um, you know, like overbearing. It's always a big rush. And so like my ideal vacation is to like go out somewhere where I don't have cell service. I'm like two hours from the nearest bathroom. Like I might run into a grizzly bear. 
Um, you know, if it starts to rain, like who knows, maybe it's going to be a flash it's gone. Like I'm trying to get deep into the wilderness as quickly as possible. So I think, um, you know, again, if, if I'm out there on vacation and someone's like, Hey, you know, you want to talk hoops, I'm just going straight into like, let me go find a tent mode. You know, I think that's, that's how I'm reacting. I can identify with most of that. Although I'd like to be closer to a bathroom than two hours. That sounds a little bit inconvenient. Uh, empty. If you're in my scenario, would you have actually, hold on, Ben, would you have made like prolonged eye contact? So that guy says, can I sit down? You stand up and leave. Would you have gone out of your way to like kind of make eye contact with him as you stood up slowly and got the hell out of there? No, I think I probably would have just slinked off. You know, I'm not trying to be rude about it. I don't, <laughs> I don't, don't want to be a be part of it. I don't want to fight for this table. The table doesn't really mean anything to me. Um, you know, and, unless I was like in the middle of my meal where I felt like I could to do is, is something along the lines of, Hey, I'm almost done. Can you give me like 10 minutes and then you can have this table. I'm just holding it for you. Uh, no, I really try not to be a jerk, but you know, in that kind of a situation, I just think I would have defaulted to like as few words as possible. Let me just get out of here, especially because of the pandemic. You know, I, I just think that's kind of overstepping for him to do that. You a pleaser, MT? I don't think you are. I think I think you would have literally told him, "No, don't sit." Um, not a pleaser. I wouldn't have told him no, but I would have made up a story. As as you were talking, you and Ben were talking. I was thinking, what would I have done? And I probably would have went with, "Oh, somebody's sitting there," and then I would have had that awkward moment where nobody comes and sits, and we make eye contact, and then I have to get <laughs> up and leave. I, I told him that people were coming and he didn't care. He didn't care at all. He was like, oh, okay, great. Like he was excited to meet them and I didn't have any follow-ups. It's like checkmate, dude. Like, oh, you beat me there. All right. Bubble ball, gentlemen. So I've checked out the book. Maxime, Marcus has checked out the book. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Um, It is a very rare type of basketball book that if you are a diehard, it speaks to you. It gives you the type of specific information and background that only hoop fans would love. But it also, if you're not a diehard, if if you just want entertaining stories from the bubble or really from this last year, it hits on both cylinders. So I really enjoyed it. And what I've got, Ben, is I pulled some passages out. I, I won't spoil the ending. I didn't pull too many. But I want to run them by you with your permission. And then I got some follow-ups on a couple of them. Um, that sounds and, good. Look, you can, I mean, we could spoil the ending. The Lakers won. You know, we, we can go ahead and we can say that. <laughs> The, the first one I'm going to give you is kind of cheating because I'm going to give you two and I'm juxtaposing two because on one side, the bubble sounds like, I don't know, an amazing experience. Here, quote, I realized that night that I might never get a professional thrill that matched the bubble experience or a longer, better look at greatness. The place was information and sensory overload. So intense, so small, so immersive, so taxing. James at Star was so overpowering, so skilled, so thoughtful, so focused, so available. The bubble was for the diehards, and the diehards should never forget it. But on the other side, Ben, you made this place sound uh, weird and kind of off-putting. Quote, in the early days, multiple players were sent back into isolation for rule violations, like leaving their room during the initial quarantine or straying off campus to pick up a food delivery. One writer who arrived halfway through had his isolation period extended because he sat in front of his hotel room to get fresh air during quarantine. The NBA held random spot checks to make sure our proximity alarms were charged up, issued rule clarification and updates by text message, and carefully policed mask wearing at the arenas. As I walked the loop one night, a security guard in an SUV pulled up next to me and demanded to see my credential before letting me go on my way. So what was this experience, man? Was it a sports fan's dream? Like, did you love it? Was it a dystopian state? I mean, how, how would you ex- uh, describe those series of weeks? No, you hit it. I mean, it was really challenging, but, you know, at the same time, it was like really quirky and exciting as well. And, and you couldn't separate uh, the one from the other. I mean, it had to be kind of this joint experience. You know, I think for me as a basketball fan, it was like the Garden of Eden. You know, I mean, there was days where I would get to see Giannis in the first game, then Harden, Westbrook, Chris Paul in the second game, then LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard in the third game. So we're talking about seven Hall of Fame players in like an eight hour period. I didn't have to travel anywhere. I didn't have to take a flight. I didn't have to get a rental car. I didn't have to you know, worry about any of the typical logistics, the playoffs. 
And my proudest achievement was that I went to every single playoff game from the second round on because the way it worked logistically, I was able to like move back and forth between the gyms pretty easily. Hmm. And there was just too many games in the first round to make that happen. But if you think, you know, just big picture, that's never going to happen again, knock on wood, unless we get another situation where they have to go to a single site scenario for the entire playoffs. And typically I will have to choose one series to follow during the playoffs. And so that meant for me, you know, nights in Oakland, covering the Warriors for, you know, spring after spring after spring. Well, I'm missing on the other side of the country, the Celtics or the, you know, whoever it would be, Toronto Raptors. I'm not getting to see those series firsthand. And in the bubble, it was like I was feeling like Rihanna or Jack Nicholson sitting courtside at every single game and then being in these press conferences and experiencing these players go through the struggles and also the the exhilarating joys, you know, simultaneously. It was sensory overload as I described it. I look back on it fondly. I would do it again, provided I knew how long it was going to be. I think Uh. I could probably handle another three months. I don't think I could have handled a six-month season, you know, like they were initially considering, you know, for this year. And I wasn't surprised at all that the players didn't want any part of that because it was so challenging. But, you know, for me personally, um, I gained weight. My stress level was up. Uh, You know, I did not sleep well. I had really strong feelings of isolation, you know, being separated from my parents 3,000 miles away. And all I had to do was write, you know, I wasn't playing. I didn't have to do any of the stuff that the players were actually going through in terms of getting their bodies ready and and being judged on social media and, you know, competing for a title, like the real stress. I didn't have any of that. And so, you know, that's why I do think it's really important to remember both sides of the bubble, quirky, weird, sci-fi, one-of-a-kind experience, but it was also really, really hard of a mental challenge. And, um, you know, the, the teams that succeeded were the teams that handled it best and the teams that uh, didn't handle it well went home early. It also makes sense that time in the bubble would be such an important you know, parameter if you're deciding whether or not to go back. It seems like the difference between, you know, Jack Nicholas at Staples and Jack Nicholas at the Overlook Hotel. <laughs> Here's Johnny. You know, it's, it's not that far right. if you're spending that time in isolation that entire way. Um, good transition, at least as far as seats are concerned. Here's another passage I wanted to run by you. Quote, the seats at Advanced Health Arena were raised and set farther back from the sideline than in other gyms. But it was still possible to hear the players talk on the court, even with the DJ playing music and artificial noise pumped in. Mostly the players shouted and won. And they thought they were fouled or exclaimed, yeah, when things were going well and yelled profanities when things were going poorly. When Anthony Davis got the ball in the post, the Lakers bench delighted in shouting out types of foods to mock defenders who were about to get eaten up by the all-star forward. Here's what I loved about this. So one of the things I was kind of excited about when the bubble was announced is I thought we would be able to hear the players talk shit to one another. But that's not what really happened in the telecast. Instead, what we heard was kind of the piped-in BS, you know, the, the chanting and the music and that other kind of stuff. So for you, when you were actually in there, was it enjoyable to hear them going back and forth at one another? And was there anybody who stuck out as the most talented talker? Well, I would say I expected more than I heard. I'll put it that way. Like in general, it's pretty routine conversations, right? Or pretty like you can imagine what guys are saying to when they're arguing about fouls. You know, it's like I took the charge. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. And then it's it's over, right? So a lot of the conversation that actually took place on the court was pretty routine or it was just, you know, greetings, guys saying what's up, how you doing, that kind of thing between teams. Now, when the playoffs kicked in, though, it did ramp up a little bit. Um, I guess even before the playoffs, when Damian Lillard missed those clutch free throws against the Clippers yeah. and Patrick Beverly and um, George and uh, Marcus Morris were mocking him from the bench, that was really awkward because everyone in the gym could really hear it. I could make out exactly what Patrick Beverly was saying. And I knew if I could hear it, that meant Lillard on the free throw line could definitely hear it. What was and he so saying? Was- Do you remember? Yeah, he was just basically like joking, Dame time, Dame time, you know, because obviously that's what Lillard yeah. always says, or or Dalla, you know, the rap nickname. And he was just kind of yelling that stuff in a very mocking fashion and just, you know, collapsing in glee when he missed these clutch free throws in a game that really didn't mean anything for the Clippers, right? Yeah. So it was completely showing Lillard up. And, you know, Lillard didn't betray anything on the court when that was happening. But he was steaming in the post-game press conference. And he always keeps a level a level head. 
but he was seething. I mean, you could tell it really bothered him. And he just unloaded on those guys with a very calm voice, talking about how he had sent each of them home from the playoffs previously, Beverly, Paul George. And it was so heated, it carried over to Instagram, like two more rounds later that night, because these guys were just sitting on their phones yelling at each other back and forth. So I loved that. I mean, of course, that was just absolute gold, uh, you know, from a writer standpoint, because, you know, these guys are competitive and they usually do a pretty good job of of holding back some of the the nasty instincts. And there it just was unleashed. Uh, but there was other moments in the playoffs, you know, when the series between Houston and the Lakers was part from for the Rockets. You know, Robert Covington was kind of, you know, begging for calls to the officials. And LeBron, you know, loudly right in front of me, like, you know, 10 feet away was like, man, all you guys do is hold. Stop crying to the officials for help. You know, we're not being too physical. You just got to play ball. And there was a few profanities mixed in here and there. But it was really just like putting Robert Covington back in his place, kind of letting him know, like, look, I'm LeBron. We're the Lakers. You guys are going home. Shut up and just take it was essentially the message from LeBron. And that was one of those moments where I was like, I don't know how some of these guys recover from that. Right. Yeah, like I'm exactly. trying to picture myself as like just an eight, you know, a six or seventh guy in the NBA and LeBron like lets me hear it like that. What am I going to do? You know, like there's no like sixth gear I can kick my no. game into to like prove him wrong, you know? So there were some really fun moments like that, but I will say in general, it was pretty cool, you know, and um, professional, like there wasn't a lot of, you know, below the belt stuff or, or any of that. And I think the players in part were aware that we could hear, of course, and they were aware that there was microphones all over the court. So I think that they were, I don't know if they were like officially instructed to keep it, you know, PG 13, but for the most part they did. Ben, not only can I associate with you, if I was Robert Covington and LeBron tried to put me in my place, I would stay in my place immediately. If I was Damian Lillard and Pat Bev started screaming at me on the free throw line, I feel like I would fold in that scenario too. I feel like I am far <laughs> too delicate. Like it just is what it is. Uh, Maxime, how would you deal? Let, give me the, the latter scenario. You're on the free throw line. Yeah, you're, you certainly are good at free throws, but someone is talking to you in front of the entire world. Would it get under your skin? Of course it would absolutely get under my skin. No doubt. And I also, I, I'm pretty impressed Ben that you found that to be something um, that gave you life because you know i was just thinking about like a quiet room where like something like you know somebody's parents are fighting and you're just sitting there watching it all happening that is like one of the most uncomfortable nails on a chalkboard type experiences i'd be entertained by it but i wouldn't want to make eye contact like i'd immediately look i'd start eating and like looking at whatever it was that i was eating really close to my face you know like i'd feel like that kind of level of awkward Well, I think it goes back to this idea of proximity within the bubble. I mean, I was live tweeting what Beverly was saying. And (laughs) part of the reason why I did that was because I was pretty sure by the time the guys got back rooms that they were going to be on their phone. And there was so much interest in this stuff that it was going to have gone viral already. And sure enough, you know, I mean, there was no way in that situation for Lillard to be like, oh, I didn't hear it. And once he knows (laughs) it's already this huge viral thing because he's getting back to the locker room and everybody's already going nuts about it. At that point, it almost forces him into having a response. Like he's not going to bite his tongue, right? Because he knows it's already a story. And so not that I was like trying to egg it, but to me, it was newsworthy. I mean, those were two teams that could have potentially faced off in the playoffs. I mean, Lillard did send Beverly home in a really painful fashion. And he did send Paul George home in a very painful fashion the previous year. And so to me, there was like kind of no way around it. And so it was more about the reporter instincts kicking in and being like, look, I got to document this because this could blow up into a crazy story. And sure enough, it did. Um, you know, I do remember though, when Lillard left for the team bus, you know, a bunch of were standing there in the hallway and everybody, you know, it was a very serious heated post game press conference. And once he left and he had officially cleared out and the Blazers had cleared out, I remember a whole bunch of reporters just absolutely cracking up. I mean, just <laughs> losing it and being like, wow, did we just watch that? That was crazy. Like Lillard just undressed those two guys. That was nuts. And I think, you know, most of the postgame press conferences there, especially early on, not that they were formulaic, but people were still getting used to the whole. Zoom. And so, you know, being in person at those Zoom calls sometimes oh, sure. was a little bit awkward. And that was just a case where like Lillard's going around the room, making eye contact with every writer as he's talking making sure that they understand what he's saying so that it gets out there was it was pretty wild man very unforgettable 
That's badass. Uh, reason number 8,000. I really like Lillard. Uh, and also, it's a good transition because, Ben, you have no problem with conflict. Let me read you a passage that I think illustrates that perfectly. Quote, as I was putting the finishing touches on his profile for Sports Illustrated, Butler, talking about Jimmy Butler, cursed me out at length over the telephone. I did my best to keep my cool, but the profanities kept flying. I understood his frustration. The fact-checking process was a hassle for everyone. Butler showed no signs of slowing down, so I finally raised my voice in response. His demeanor changed instantly, and we worked through the outstanding issues. I hung up the phone thinking that he had been testing me. To me, it was a procedural phone call. To Butler, it was an opportunity to compete. I have collected hundreds of refrigerator magnets from my travels as an NBA writer, and I filled my story feeling like I had just collected my Jimmy Butler magnet. So what does that mean when you say you felt like you collected your Jimmy Butler magnet? How are you using that phrase? Well, look, I mean, this guy's a competitive monster, right? And we hear all the stories, the 4 a.m. workouts, the, you know, the coffee and how obsessive he is about stuff like that and how he's just, you know, all, all gas, no breaks. I mean, that was the headline for that cover story illustrated was this idea that, you know, he wants to be like an object that stays in motion, you know, object in motion stays in motion. That's his whole philosophy to life. He just wants to keep moving. And it goes back to the fact that he was homeless when he was in high school and, and didn't feel like, um, you know, he had a place that he could call his own and just kind of settle into. And so it kind of ingrained in him this idea of like, you've just got to constantly work, keep making progress forward. And eventually you're going to get where you're supposed to go. And, you know, along with that has come a lot of bridges and hurt feelings, right? I mean, look, he went from Chicago to Minnesota to Philly to Miami to get himself in position to reach that finals. We know about his exit in Minnesota, how messy that was and, and how it didn't go so well with his teammates. There was clearly like a tug of uh, a tug of war for control of the Sixers and, and it wound up with him leaving. Um, and in Chicago, I, I don't think him and Fred Hoiberg had similar personality types at all. In fact, I could never imagine Fred Hoiberg cussing me out on a, a phone call, sort of like the one that you'd Right. I mean, just, you know, nice guy, Fred and, and super intense Jimmy. So for me, it was just the idea of like, it takes an awful lot of uh, persistence and self-confidence and the willingness to hurt feelings to be great. I mean, we've heard that from a lot of different people, whether it's Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, the list goes on um, at this highest level of sports. Now, not everybody has to be a jerk, but even still, you know, the nicest guy in the league, every once in a while, you'll see him snap a little bit and you realize like, man, that fire is different for these guys. They are wound more tightly. That's why they are where they are. That's what's driven them to get into the gym and take all those shots over the course of their lives. And so I had interviewed, you know, Jimmy uh, you know, a few times over the years, but that moment was where I really got it. I was like, yep, you know, this guy is, he is testing me a little bit. He does want me to kind of push back. He's just kind of almost taking a measure of huh. me here a little bit. And one interesting that story, a couple of years later, I was writing about Jimmy again. And about two days before our phone call, I had written a story about Blake Griffin. And the lead of my story was about the size of Blake Griffin's calves. And I had been at a, a, a Jordan brand sneaker shoot and there had been two kids who were like on set as part of the commercial. And they were just gawking at Blake Griffin's calves. And this is like, you know, a couple of years after the slam dunk competition where he's the highest flyer in the game, right? Sure. And these guys are staring at his calves like they can't believe anyone has legs like this. So I use that as kind of the color into my lead. And, you know, I, I'm kind of painting this picture of these kids just absolutely blown away by Blake Griffin's calves. And I, I get on the phone with Jimmy and he's like, hey, what's up, man? And the first words out of his mouth after hello were, so, you know, are we going to talk about basketball or are we going to talk about my cats? So I don't know how he found that Blake Griffin story, but I think it was kind of in a way it was him busting my chops a little bit, which, you know, completely fine. No problem there. But I also felt like it was a, maybe a little bit of an olive branch from that previous uh, ex experience. We have not sure. talked about that ever since, but I thought it was sort of his way of just, you know, again, just being that jocular leader, big personality guy. And he's very funny. Um, you see what a big brother he was to a guy like Tyler Hero throughout that postseason run. And so, of course, I bear no ill will towards him. And, I, you know, I, I'm fine being cussed out. It really doesn't bother me. It's, it's okay. It's part of the game. Um, and, and so I don't want that story to come off, you know, negative in any way towards him about that phone call. It was just the idea that, like, this is how this guy is wired. There's a yeah. reason why he was able to win two games against the Lakers in the finals. He's a competitive nut. You know, he's he he will not go down easily 
and everything is a competition. And, and hopefully that story helped tell that. Well, and you receiving it in that fashion changes the entire interaction. You understanding that he's not being a dick just to be a dick. He's, he's being a dick to kind of test you and to see if you'll stand up for yourself kind of shades his personality and tells us more about that story than the story itself. How do you stop him, by the way? So he's going off. You're realizing, oh, okay, you know, this is getting a little out of hand. He's, he's testing me. Do you literally just scream, stop? You know, like what you say you raise your voice. What's the key? How do you get Jimmy Butler to stop uh, going after you? You know, I, I forget exactly what the nature of his uh, his kind of like line of attack was in terms of why he was yelling. But I think at one point I just said something along the lines of like, look, dude, you don't know me. Right. Like, don't don't be making assumptions you know, like that. And I think he understood that because he feels misunderstood. Right. And sure. look, this was sensitive material. Right. I'm talking about a very painful childhood with him kind of digging in and trying to get confirmation on some details that I completely understand why this would be triggering or if not triggering, then just something that you want to leave buried, you know, and this is in the middle of a season where he's probably got games and practices to prepare for. There's not a great time and place for this. And that's why I was completely empathetic when I said, you know, sure. nobody wants to this fact checking process. And I think ultimately when I went back to him, I was like, look, I don't want to have to ask you these questions. It's just my job. This is what I have to do if we're going to get the story written. And I think he understood that. And ultimately like it was a, it was a milestone in his career too. It was his first cover, you know? And I think, He's come a long way since that moment in terms of his star power and his profile. And I caught him at exactly the right time because it was before he really blew up. It was before he signed his second contract with um, the Chicago Bulls. It was kind of an int introductory piece about him for a lot of people where, you know, people didn't know details like, you know, that summer he spent before his most improved player season, he cut off his cable. You know, he, he basically didn't have video games, didn't have internet. Like he was denying himself all this stuff so that he could just go to the gym six times a day. You know, he was just like a complete workout maniac. And that's how he put on all the weight and got himself bigger and stronger. And that's how he worked on his ball skills and his, uh, his ball hand, um, you know, and his, his playmaking for his teammates and all that stuff. I mean, there was a lot of sacrifice involved there. And, you know, that was really one of the themes of the story was how competitive he was, but how he was willing to put basketball first. And hopefully he appreciated that. You never know. Yeah. But hopefully he did. It sounds like just with the Olive Branch story you told us, it sounds like he absolutely did. Uh, last question, and it's hard for me to say. So I, I, I know we are keeping you longer than promised, and I still have so many passages in front of me, but here, I'm going to go with this one because I am pretty entertained by its answer. So here's a passage, quote, This was very challenging and difficult, LeBron James said. It played with your mind. It played with your body. You're away from some of the things that you're so accustomed to that make you the professional that you are. I heard some rumblings from people that are not in the bubble, that we don't have to travel or whatever. People just doubting what goes on in here. This is right up there with one of the greatest accomplishments I've had, end quote. And we've heard this from LeBron in other places too. He's said that this is one of the greatest titles that was ever won. So as a bitter Warriors fan, obviously I fought back against this, Ben. And, and you know, he, he addressed what I would give him shit about. There is no travel. There were no fans. You know, there were some advantages of playing in the bubble. But in related news, I didn't spend one second in there. I have no idea what it felt like. You did. You were there, you know, the entire time. So as someone who was actually in the bubble and shared some of this experience in the way that it wore you down, do you agree with LeBron? It, it, was this title more important or harder to win than titles that were not played in the Orlando bubble? Well, this is a tough one to tell a bunch of Warriors fans, but I mean, I think his greatest achievement was 2016. Um, you know, when you you're bastard. talking about, I you could have just said I, no. You could have just said no. You know, and we would have known what you were talking about. I mean, that was totally. You, we we're just becoming friends, and now you punch me right in the face. <laughs> I, you know, look, I, I'm keeping it real with you. That's part of being the goat. <laughs> I'll right? take it. Fair you enough. You gotta. You can't. You can't go. You know, lip service and play it all like Mr. Maybelline. You know, I can't do that. Somewhere, um, Maxime is smiling wildly, and he's probably thinking to himself, "This is why I like Ben more than Bram." I mean, just nicely play it again. <laughs> God damn you, Maxime! <laughs> I would just say it was an amazing accomplishment, especially from LeBron. I think that if you're going to nitpick, you look at the quality of competition that he faced. I mean, it's amazing they won a title last year and didn't have to go through Steph, Katie, Kyrie, Giannis, Kawhi Leonard, or Paul George. Right? Yep, I mean, yep. what a fortuitous way that played out for them. So I don't want to discount the Lakers title, but I think that's probably the, the area that you would nitpick if you're going to say anything about that particular title. And I wrote it in the book. You know, I think that Miami Heat team is the weakest of the teams I've ever seen in a finals. 
and I've covered every final since 2011. So I think that's important context here. In terms of the environmental challenge, though, was the best part. And I think the referees, the players, uh, the writers, everybody will tell you that. The playoff grind is really tough. I mean, there's no way around it. It's you know, I, I kind of look forward to it and dread it every single year. And I'm right in that mode right now where I'm getting ready to ramp up for it. And, you know, I'm excited. And at the same time, I know by the time I get to early July, I'm going to be done. You know, I'm going to be gassed out. And, sure. and there's kind of no way around it. Um, so I think that the players did not uh, lay it on too thick. I think that LeBron is great at his own myth making. He understands the power of narratives. He knows it's in his best interest to play up this idea of how difficult it was. But at the same time, it was super hard. And the people who had it hardest were people with kids, you know, and that's, you know, who didn't come. And that's include LeBron in that category. I mean, I think he's talked about missing his kids' birthdays, uh, missing the start of school, even though it was kind of distance learning. I didn't have to deal with that personally. And that's just another layer of challenge that I think a lot of people did have to deal with. And they were there for a long time. The burden on him was incredibly heavy, whether it was the player activism uh, you know, social activism, you know, speaking out on Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake, Donald Trump, gun control. I mean, this guy was holding press conferences as if he was kind of like doing uh, TV, uh, cable TV news hits almost every single night after these games because there was so much going on during that right. election year. It was tough stuff, man. It was no joke. And so I would always point to saying no asterisk on this. Don't treat it differently. This was a, an incredible challenge, an incredible achievement. And one point to underline that, that has nothing to do with the Lakers. And by the way, the Lakers were worthy champions too. I mean, 16 and five smoked everybody, right? So you kind of have to give them their due on that front. Um, but look at the responses around the league to what happened in the bubble. In other words, people did not write off this postseason and just say, oh, this doesn't matter. Pelicans fire their coach. Sixers fire their coach and hire a new president and trade Al Horford. The Bucks trade Eric Bledsoe as quickly as possible, right? They, they grab Drew Holiday to make upgrades. The Clippers part ways with Doc Rivers, who had been like a franchise mainstay for them. Um, you just go right down. The Houston Rockets completely combust, yeah. change coaches, trade Harden, trade Westbrook. You go right down the list of teams that endured adversity in the bubble, and a lot of them you know, reacted to it swiftly, aggressively, and in major fashion. And so that tells me, look, this thing counted. This was a real event. Makes sense. Otherwise, sure. you know, the, the decision makers would have handled things differently. And, hey, we'll just run it back after the pandemic and the attitude. And that's not how they treated it. So That's a great you know, point. I, I mean, look, I love the sport. And, um, you know, I'm not afraid to say the quality of play this year has not been great. I think the quality of play in the bubble was strong in part because of the lack of travel. And in part because these guys had nothing else to do except for focus on their craft. And, uh, you know, I feel very you know privileged and, and a lot of gratitude to have witnessed that. And it's going to be the most memorable postseason I've ever covered in my life. You know, there, there's kind of no way around it. Um, and it, because it's so much different than a typical one. Somewhere Mikey the Egret is you know, smiling, Bill from Bill, uh, from, from that description. Ben, we really appreciate you coming, man. Um, the... Pressure that was on this episode, I was not shy about, and you more than, than met what we were expecting. So I really appreciate it and hope that we can do this again at some point. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate the, the kind of that you took the time to read the book and, and uh, find those passages. You're bringing back, you know, a big smile on my face here hearing you say that back. And it was much more pleasant than when I had to read it back on the audiobook version. And you're just like, oh, man, this is like going to the dentist. You know, you have to read your own <laughs> words out loud. So, um, I really appreciate your guys' attention to detail there. Uh, it was our pleasure, and I am positive I'm not the only one who's going to enjoy it. So help prove me right for people out there who want either more Ben Golliver or just Bubble Ball in their life. Where should they go? They can uh, find the book uh, by searching for Bubble Ball and, and my name, Ben Golliver. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, really wherever you get your books. Um, it releases Tuesday, May 4th. So if you order now, you'll get it next week, which is pretty exciting for me because it's been a, a long year to get to this point. They can follow me on Instagram at Ben.Golver. And of course, they can check out the GOAT podcast that you mentioned at greatestofalltalk.com. And you know, I should also mention washingtonpost.com slash sports. All my columns go. I wrote one recently about Steph Curry and sort of how he factors into this whole play-in conversation. And uh, people might enjoy that too. 
If you want to find us, tell us we did a good job, bad job. You want to share a table with me at a sports bar, you can hit us up at warriorshuddle at gmail.com. Our only social media presence is our Twitter account, which is at Warriors Huddle. With that in mind, go Warriors. Hopefully, we'll see you next week. Good, good. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com podcast. Easier said, done.